Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Hugh Brown, who is a best-selling documentary photographer within our industry um, and is in the process of photographing a major book to educate our lives um, of the world's 40 million artisanal miners and how we as an industry should acknowledge them and work or protect them uh, or protect these artisanal artisanal miners in uh, our pursuit to mine the land. Um, Hugh's on the podcast to talk about obviously artisanal mining um, and has many and some of the many challenges that they are faced with daily um, and obviously wants to make us aware that these people do exist obviously within our industry um, and he's also going to talk about the uh, uh, Garmin Pyrrhus project which is all about putting pressure on the world's richest nations and companies um, to properly plan for what happens to these artisanal miners once they lose their jobs. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this um, to this episode and obviously educating our audience, um, which I suppose a lot of us may not necessarily be aware of the issues um, in our industry around artisanal mining. So um, that's welcome, Hugh, to the podcast. How are you doing, Hugh? Good, Rob. Thank you very much for having me on. No, and I appreciate your time as well. Um, obviously, we, um, we were introduced by a, a mutual friend. So, um, I wondered if you can give our audience a um, a snapshot of your career and your background, um, and obviously as your career has developed to where you are today. Yeah, so as you said, I'm a documentary photographer. Um, been doing this, been a photographer for nearly 25 years. I think it'll be 25 years next year, um, and I've been photographing um, large scale and small scale mining around the world for you know over over 15 years so um before that i I, you know i was a consultant i worked in corporate strategy um and then again i had mining clients so i was you know pretty much right across you know my career of what is it 30 years that's pretty scary um i've been i've been involved with the mining industry so i reckon i've got a really really good understanding of not just large-scale mining but also um small-scale mining and and then being able to compare those so yeah and I suppose, how, how did you get into the mining industry and then obviously subsequently um, get into the photography side of things? Yeah, so I fell into it to a large extent. Um, my studies were in in business and law and um, um, I think I got VAC work at BHP in um, corporate head office in Melbourne back in the early 90s. Um, and that was really my first um, exposure. And then when I became a consultant, I had a lot of large mining clients or was working on a large, lot of large mining companies. And, um, and so it sort of evolved from there. And then when I decided to become a photographer, and so I'd never, I'd never been in my frame of reference that I wanted to be a photographer. It just sort of happened. Um, mining was what I knew. And um, so I sort of you know, I was doing, I think uh, at that stage, I was doing the second book and um, I was looking at a way to fund that second book. And then so I started doing work with with mining clients. And, you know, if I'm perfectly 
open and honest, I was pretty ordinary at that stage, you know. So I look back at some of the work from those years and um, I was pretty bloody ordinary. So um, it sort of just evolved from there and and um, I've done, you know, I've done, I say seven books, but I've been involved in a lot more books than that. I'm doing another major book for, a, for one of the world's largest companies right now and um, it's sort of just gone from there. Um, so what projects are you sort of company working on at the moment? Yeah, so um, I've got another book on the Pilbara due out. That's at the um, that's with my designer at the moment. Um, got a book for, as I was saying, for major mining company right now. Um, and then I've, uh, you know, on top of that, I've got another book over here in Western Australia. They're all sort of those first three are about ninety percent. You know, the ones almost one hundred percent done. The others about ninety percent done. And then um, I'm working on the Garen Perros project, which has been really the major, probably the biggest project I've ever worked on, and um, that's to to document the lives of the world's forty million artisanal miners around the world. Yeah. Before we just go into into that, um, obviously you mentioned you're working on three uh, three books. What kind of content are you putting in there? I take it obviously a lot of photography, but is there, I suppose, a theme um, or some sort of content around around what you're putting into those books? Yeah, so perhaps the best way to frame that is um, I remember I was talking to the head of our state art gallery some years ago. I exhibited with a, a pretty well-known photographer, um, a guy called Richard Waldendorp, um, who's one of the pioneers of aerial photography probably in the world. And and I remember the the gallery curator or director saying to me, he said one of the things that you know stood out about Richard was that um, he – stuck with a subject and documented over a long period of time. And that sort of resonated with me. So um, I've, I've basically picked, in Australia, I've basically picked two areas that, I want to, that I've wanted to focus on and do that over a long period of time. One of those is the Pilbara region, which is, you know, the Pilbara region probably accounts for, at a guess, 40% of the world, 40 to 50% of the world's iron ore output. Um, and so the book on the Pilbara, it, it captures sort of, you know, it's over a 15-year period that I've shot this book and it captures, you know, changes in the towns, the landscape, the industry, the people, all of that sort of stuff. And it's about normally the mix of my books is about two, two-thirds photos and a third text. So, um, you know, for example, I photographed um, Port Hedland, which is the world's largest export tonnage port. I've been photographing that from the air for, for uh, about 17, 18 years now. And you look back, it's really fascinating to see the changes in the port. So when that port was scaled up from um, 106 million tonnes per annum back in back in 2005 to, you know, around about 550 million tonnes, and it's this tiny little port with a, a tiny little entrance. And um, it's incredible to um, have be, been witness and document, you know, how they've turned this tiny port into the world's largest export tonnage port. It's incredible. Um, Sorry. Oh. No, carry on. Yeah. I was going to say, so is one book, for instance, a period of 15 years? Or yeah, the Pil- that, Pil- that Pilbara book's a period of 15 years. Um, the other, Another book I've got um, on a, a town called Roburn in Western Australia, which is, you know, it's literally 40 k's up the road from one of the wealthiest um, postcodes in, in Australia, um, where you know basically one of the the the, the, the domiciles of the iron ore industry in terms of you know it's got it's got two three ports um, within that area um, and here you've got the, you know one of the Australia's richest postcodes 
um, 40 k's up the road from one of Australia's most impoverished postcodes. So um, that Roburn book, I, I photographed and interviewed about 50 people over, you know, probably seven or eight years capturing their stories as that town changed. So, um, yeah, that's that's the other sort of component of it. Yeah. Um, so just wondering if you can tell us more about the uh, Govrimpress uh, project uh, and what does it mean? And I suppose what, what's it all what's it, what's it all about? Yeah, so Garimperos, it's um, a Portuguese word um, for prospectors. Um, when we hear about Garimperos, it's usually in the context of um, Latin America and Brazil. Um, obviously, Brazil is Portuguese speaking. So, um, and, and it's usually used in the context of illegal miners in Brazil. So, um, how I came into to contact with um, you know, the Garimperos around the world was I did a trip to Ghana back in 2006, which I almost didn't take because um, uh, a client sort of said, you know, I've been doing a bit, of, a bit of work for them. They said, we want you to go to Africa. How do you feel about that? And I said, oh, look, leave it with me. And I I actually nearly flicked it to a mate I studied law with. And um, I thought, no, I'll, I'll end up, I'll go. And um, the client said to me at the time, he said, you know, you, you'll go there and and it'll it's going to shake you to the core. Um, I didn't sort of think that was going to happen because I'd sort of seen severe poverty in my own country in Australia, which, you know, people typically would never think of parts of Australia as having third world poverty, but we do in terms of Aboriginal communities. And um, so I decided to go and I, I wasn't shocked. Um, pretty intense trip. We saw um, saw people mining by the roadside and I was fascinated. My driver, Jono, has since passed away. He he kept sort of cautioning me when I get out and want to take photos of these guys. And he said, look, some of these people are dangerous people. And Anyway, um, went back in 2008, same client or plus plus some others. And and um, then in 2010, when I went back, um, I was so fascinated. I came back and after really long trips over there, I thought, you know, I'll, I'd love to do a book on this subject and basically got stuck in, rank a couple of clients. They spotted me some cash and um, I went, to, I think I started in Burkina Faso. So the purpose of that project is to, um, you know, again, I, 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 people have captured aspects of the Garamperos or these artisanals for a, a period of time, a long period of time. And but it's usually they've just done, you know, they might have covered two or three um, s- subjects in that whole thing. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to capture it on a global scale. Um, so diversity of topography. I wanted the the barren deserts, the highest altitude miners in the world, the tropics, the rivers, the a marine environment, the Arctic, um, savannah, all of that sort of stuff, and then and even an active volcano. So, um, and then I wanted to capture diversity of commodities. So, you know, a, a variety of commodities, not just because we're always here about gold or at the moment it's cobalt and other things, but you know, artisanal mining sort of um, tends to um, it tends to be relevant across a really large range of commodities. Um, and then I wanted to capture diversity of culture and geography. So geography in terms of as many continents as I could get and then um, the different cultures that sort of um, float around artisanal mining. And, and when I started, it was it was very much, um, you know, again, I look at the start of that project, I look at how I approach the subject now, totally different. Um, I suppose that's a metaphor for life as we learn, we grow. But um, I the, the when I started, I wanted this the, the coverage of the topic to be as impartial as possible. And I remember I was talking to one guy who's quite prominent in the industry fairly early on. He told me I didn't know what I was talking about. 
he didn't know anything about the background. He didn't know whether I had half a brain or not. He just said, I don't know what I'm talking about and basically bugger off. And um, that sort of stuck with me a little bit. And then, you know, the further I went, everyone said it's a great project, but no one really wanted to help. And as it went further and further, I started realising there were literally billions of dollars flowing into this sector. And I thought, surely someone can see the benefit of getting this issue, uh, you know, of a project like this because it raises the profile of 40 million people around the world and yet no one really wanted to have a bar of billions of dollars. So then I sort of went through this fairly intensive stage of try, you know, as I looked as to how I might market the project, I, I started drilling right down to understand the industry as well as I could. And that's how my brain's wired. Um, I've always been a conceptual thinker and I like to then drill into the detail. And um, so that's basically what happened. And the more I looked, the more I became uncomfortable with what I was finding. And then I thought, you know what, if no one's going to fund this, one thing I know is I'll get the book done. But for a period, I didn't know what I wanted to achieve with the book beyond those early parameters that I'd sort of set. And then I thought, you know what, this book can be used. These, these people that I'm photographing don't have a voice, you know, like everyone's making decisions about them in the world's wealthiest countries, but no one's virtually listening to these people. We've got this thing called responsible sourcing, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which billions of dollars being thrown into it. And I'm seeing these people on the ground and I'm not seeing any changes in their lives. All I'm seeing is first world consultants making a lot of money um, with virtually zero benefit going back to the people that I was photographing. And, and so, and the analogy for me there was we had, um, you know, if you have an iceberg, you got 95% of the icebergs below the water and then 5% on top. Well, what I was seeing was maybe 5% of the benefit of all this spend going to the artisanal miners that they purported to be wanting to help. And then 95% of the spend was going, was going on consultants. I thought, if you're a consultant, it's the best business model in the world. If it's um, you're an artisanal miner, you're going to be getting really pissed off because everyone's telling you what to do. They're spending all this money, and at the end of the day, we're just being tied. We're just being shoved around like uh, like chess pieces on a chessboard. So, um, and that and that so that's where I've been. And so now the the, the goal of the project very much is to um, get it in the hands of important people around the world and to. Um, refine the quality of the decisions that are being made and to also say that if we want to change the lives of these people, we need to take into account, we need to take into account the impacts of the decisions that we're taking in terms on things like employment and the like. And if there's a detrimental impact, then what we need to be doing is um, we need to be um, putting in place mitigation so these people aren't worse off. And so that's where I'm at now and that's what I'm pushing for. And, yeah, that's probably how we came into contact. Yeah. Um, I suppose one question I should have asked probably a little bit earlier is how do you define an artisanal miner um, or that, that type of process? Um, is there a sort of particular definition um, that, you would, uh, that you would associate with artisanal mining? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean... You talk to you talk to hundred different people, and they might might give you hundred different answers. So on that, the, the I came up with my own um, my own definition. So um, that being people using 
no or very limited or very primitive means of mechanization to mine around the world. So I don't just in, in that context, I'm not just referring to mining also as um, inorganic material. I'm also in cases referring to it as organic material. So, for example, you have amber in places like the Ukraine, you have um, mammoth tusk in Russia um, and whatever else, so fossils around the world. So, um, And then there's a sort of another component to it on the small-scale mining side, which is there's, there's mechanisation um, but that's getting sort of becoming more blurred because um, mechanisation is increasing um, in many areas of the world in, in smaller scale mining. So there's a sort of a, a very blurry boundary that sort of between large scale mining and, and the artisanals that I photograph. But, but for the purpose of what I'm doing, it's limited or no mechanisation and or very primitive means of mechanisation. And also, I suppose they are not like a company or not structured. Also, I suppose... Oh, would they not have licenses to actually do mining in a particular area where they are doing it? Are they allowed to? Have they been given permission or don't they need permission? Yeah, look, that's a, a really interesting question and, and something that's really mis misunderstood around the world. Um, um, yeah, typically these people work in very small groups or individually. So, But that said, you know, in places like Bolivia, in uh, Cerro Rico, um, you had maybe 120 cooperatives um, working inside Cerro Rico. Um, but then, you know, you, the, the, thing, the thing about artisanal mining is there's no one model as to how it works. And everyone tries to generalise about artisanal mining. It's possible to generalise on certain aspects, but... Um, the, the fundamentally, it's it's impossible to generalise because it's done in so many different ways around the world. And and what happens typically with AS, with artisanal mining is that um, it evolves in a local context to, and the mining methods evolve in a local context to suit the ore bodies that they're mining. And until a few years ago, um, you know, before the arrival of you know smartphones and the like. Um, there was very, very little scope for communication between miners around the world in terms of sharing things like technology and know-how. And um, so you can have, you know, it's all fundamentally the, you know, the ways of mining, say something like gold around the world are fairly similar, but um, they use in different places, different equipment, um, different methods, all of that sort of stuff. Um, obviously, you're passionate about this and um, we spoke um, yesterday, actually, before or a few days ago, before uh, agreeing to do this podcast, and I can see obviously you were passionate then, you are passionate now. Why? Why? Why would you say you you are passionate about this whole this whole subject? Yes, that's another really good question, um, and it's something that I've gone through a, a heap of introspection on over the years, Rob. And and um, the best way to answer that is. I've seen I've seen stuff along the journey um, that's not all good, um, and when you see certain stuff in inverted commas, it reminds you or no, it teaches you about the impermanence of life, and it teaches you about, in many respects, the meaninglessness of life. So, and one of the things you know that wasn't so bad. We've got a place in the Pilbara, which is where I am right now. Um, and we're home to what's believed to be the, the world's earliest known evidence of life on Earth, um, stromatolites, single-cell bacteria that are fossilised um, near a place called Marble Bar, you know, the hottest town in Australia. And that, that, those stromatolites have been dated at 3.49 billion years old. So 
if you assume that life on Earth began, say, 3.6 billion years ago, which is where most estimates have it roughly now, and you said, right, that 3.6 billion year time frame was going to be a one-hour movie or one-hour documentary. Human beings came along in the last half second of that one-hour documentary as a, as a species. So what that tells you is that nothing is important. So that leads me back to your question. When you see it in that context, all you can do, because this is your only frame of reference, all you can do is that which feels important. And for whatever reason, I can't answer it. Um, this project feels deeply, deeply important. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to finish the project or I'm going to die in the process of finishing the project. There's going to be, it's, it's one of those two. There's nothing in the middle. So... Um, and that's what's driving me. It drives me to get out of bed every day. Um, it drives me to, it's driven me to sell my house to finish the project. Um, I'm here because I want to make an impact. It's not about, you know, ego for me or anything like that. It's just this feels important and I want to make a difference. And, you know, we've we've done stuff, we've been involved in stuff over the journey where we've we've made a difference and, I'm not one to believe that something's too big that we can't tackle it because we've tackled stuff that's been big before and we've rolled it. So um, this is just one of those things, you know, as, as, as someone close to me said recently, you know, um, it takes a number of drops to make an ocean, but at the start, at the end of the day, you start with a single drop and that's that's what I see this as. What, what I suppose, drives people to participate in artisanal mining? Um, and I suppose what are the common misconceptions out there um, about artisanal mining? And I suppose obviously a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are in the mining industry. And, and I suppose every person listening would have a different understanding of what artisanal mining is. And so I just wondered what misconceptions are out there that may not be necessarily true. Yeah. So the biggest generalization that people use is that. Um, People do artisanal mining because there's no alternative vocations for them to, to do. Um, that's not been my experience. Obviously, there are situations where um, there's going to be, you know, forced labour and all of that. But in all my time doing this around the world over the last 16 years, um, I've only ever come across one situation where people had no choice, and that was in India, in the coal fields of eastern India. And basically what had happened there was you had um, the indigenous Adivasi population, which are a, a very, um, they're, they're given a preeminent place in the Indian constitution. The problem they had was that coal came, um, coal came along. And coal is one of, I think, five strategic minerals under the Indian constitution. So, and with the, the, the rapid industrialization going on in India, India, what happened was coal was taking a preeminent place to the Adivasi. And then what was coming out of that with the Adivasi were being pushed off their, you know, out of their villages, out of their hunting and cropping lands and whatever else. And most of the time they were being given virtually no compensation. So these people had been kicked off their, their traditional lands and had been forced to turn to the very mineral that brought about their near destruction. Now, that's the exception that I've seen. Um, the rest of the time, people are choosing to, in my experience, to be in artisanal mining because um, it pays more. So it pays three times more than 
you know, what they might earn if they're working in the fields and the farms because there's always alternatives. There's always options for them to go into the villages or work in the fields, work on the farms. There's always that option open to them. The reason most of them come into artisanal mining is because they can make a lot more money a lot more quickly. And, and what's interesting about that is that if you um, if you think about fly and fly out workers in Western Australia or Queensland or wherever else, um, most of those miners are making that choice to do that kind of work, work 84-hour weeks on maybe a two-in-one roster, two weeks on, one week off, um, because it enables them to earn more cash and, and a lot more quickly. And, and they're all doing it. What's happened, the one commonality between the, the miners in Western Australia and the miners that I photograph overseas as well, uh, they're all sacrificing the life they could be living now for the prospect of a better life, and that's prospect in, in italics. So they're all looking to make better lives for themselves and their families, to provide better education for their children, to build a house or buy a bigger house. That's what's driving them. Um, you're obviously on record as being really passionate, as I've, as I've mentioned earlier, um, about the concept of responsible and ethical um, sourcing. Um, why is that so? Uh, because this con- concept of responsible sourcing, responsible mining, whatever you call it, it's driving a lot of change and um, impact on the artisanal miners that I photograph. And it's being driven by people in the developed world. It's not being driven by people in the um, first world. And, and what I, where I'm getting at with that is that you've got these decisions being taken that are impacting on or that are intended to impact on artisanal miners. And the artisanal miners aren't being given a say. And what's even worse about it all is, as I said earlier, 95% of the spend on responsible sourcing is going on developed world consultants. So you've got auditors, you've got risk assessors, you've got um, people doing traceability analysis, you've got um, whatever else. And then they all come back and they pull all these reports together and they say, we're we're doing... um, uh, you know, our product is the product that we produce is made from responsibly sourced materials or whatever else. Now, if that was a charity and you had 95% of the spend going on administration and 5% getting through to the people you're intending to benefit, you'd shut that charity down in an instant. Yet, because we're in this era of, you know, um, what's the word? Because we're in this era of, um, you know, people just accept what they're being told. Um, no one's challenging this concept of responsible sourcing. And it's coming from really, really powerful places. So it's coming from the OECD or it initially came out of, you know, the Obama administration back in 2010 when they had enacted Section 1502 of Dodd-Frank. Um, you've had the EU um, enact their, you know, conflict and high, you know, conflict minerals um, legislation. And you know what the crazy thing about that is? You've got this new legislation that um, took them, I think it came into being at the start of 2021 or something, and it it took them 11 years after Dodd-Frank, and then it was only in relation to a few minerals. Um, And then I was was contacted recently in the the OECD, and he said, oh, you know, we we need to give time for industry to adjust. So they've had 11 years to sort of get this right, and then it's only a few minerals. They're going, to, they're going to be bringing in some others in the next year or two. And then to cap it off, there's basically no enforcement mechanisms for people that breach the law. So just so have a think about that. So imagine you're driving down a road, the speed limit's 100 k's an hour, 
You're doing 300 k's an hour. You're breaking the law, but there's no police to enforce it. It's ridiculous. And the other thing about um, this concept of responsible sourcing is what does it actually mean? Um, and everyone's saying we've got product that's responsibly sourced, but responsible sourcing means different things to different people. So I could ask you what your concept of responsible sourcing is in relation to, say, a diamond or whatever. And then I could ask someone in another country or I could ask even someone in the same household. And you're going to, and I'm going to, and then I could say to you, what elements do you think are important in deciding whether that, um, that particular mineral is responsibly sourced? And you might have some ideas. You might say there's no child labour or, you know, there's no environmental degradation or we're thinking about employment for how much employment does it generate for local people? And everyone has different, um, a different concept of what responsible sourcing is to them. And then, because it has different what elements, and then you've got to say each person is going to weight each of those elements differently in terms of importance. So if you've got, and then you've got to, you know, if you're doing it properly, you score each of those elements. So you've got so many areas that can break apart. And yet then you've got companies saying this is or it isn't responsibly sourced. It's ridiculous. And as I keep, the only thing I can come up with on this is that you've got all these people have designed a system to benefit the consultants because I, there's no benefit, virtually no benefit going back to the, the people that are purporting to help. Um, and it's completely meaningless. It's just, that's, that's why I'm so passionate about it. Um, obviously, um, you've obviously, like you said, obviously around the funding, you sold your house. Um, so I suppose this whole process isn't money driven for you. Um, so wh- why have you taken a lead in standing up for the world's sort of poorest miners? Because no one else seems to be doing it. You know, there's people doing pilot programs and all of that here and there. But at the moment, those pilot programs are tinkering at the edges. And the real question is, are those programs that they're, they're implementing, are they, are they going to be scalable? over a lot of countries and involving a lot of people. And the other, the other thing that's really interesting about it is that um, do people, does the consumer ultimately care about whether something is responsibly sourced? There's only one test as to whether people care about it, and that is whether they're pre- prepared to pay a price premium for the product that they're buying because it's responsibly sourced, whatever responsible sourcing means. So if people aren't prepared to pay a price premium, then... It's meaningless. It's virtue signaling again. And, and I suppose that's the so, – so for me, it's – I just want to see – I want to see these people get looked after. And what I feel is happening at the moment is we've got the world's richest countries again making decisions about the world's poorest countries. And if I'm a cynic, I also suspect that there's um, – I also suspect that what's going on is that um, companies are acting very much in terms of – securing their mineral interests at a geopolitical level. So, um, you know, for example, we've had in the last, between 2010 and 2020, we had half the gold discovered around the world as we did in a single year, in the single year of 1990. So get your head around that. So in 1990, we discovered twice as much gold as we did between 2010 and 2020 around the world. So what I see happening at the moment is there's basically five places left the major mineral finds going forward. One is in the um, marine environment um, on the seafloor and below. Um, the second is some of the world's major wilderness areas. So, 
you know, the Amazon, the jungles of Central Africa, Alaska, wherever else, um, the polar regions, um, in outer space, so into the asteroid belt and elsewhere, and then finally the world's poorest nations, the the the, the, the third world. Now, and where do you think virtually all of the world's artisanal miners operate? They operate in the third world, and they're operating on top of good size ore bodies. So it seems to me very convenient that, um, and just it seems to me very convenient that we you know we're starting to lean into the artisanal miners right now. And I, I think back to a, a declassified State Department document from Kissinger back in 1974, and he talked about um, the importance of the third world to United States mineral securities back as far as 1974. So um, these are some of the issues that, you know, I suppose fire me up. Um, we hear a lot of uh, a lot about uh, cobalt uh, um, and artisanal mining. Um, is it justified? And if so, if so, why? Um, and if not, why not? Yeah, interesting question. You've got about 150,000 to 200,000 um, artisanal miners um, mining cobalt in the, in the Congo. The Congo is responsible for about 70% of the um, global cobalt output and I think probably 15% roughly of, you know, cobalt output around the world. So we hear a lot about cobalt, child miners, um, whatever else in the Congo, but when you, in reality, there are 150 to 200,000 of an artisanal mining population globally of 40 million. So, if that's the case, if we've got 150 to 200,000, um, one of the things that stands out is that there's cobalt mining in the Congo is ordinary in terms of. Um, what it looks like and the types of mining practices that go on in artisanal mining all around the world. So it doesn't stand out to me in, in my visits there as being um, any more dangerous or anything else. And, and what was put to me, you know, when you, what's really interesting is cobalt is one of the pinch points in the um, electric vehicle supp supply chain. So you've got to ask yourself, who stands to benefit from raising cobalt as an issue where it's a pinch point in the global supply chain for batteries and electric vehicles. Um, and when you, when you look at that, that sort of starts to, and I've, I've heard and I've been, you know, there's basically people lobbying to sort of put a squeeze on cobalt because they're trying to sort of impede the take up, not the take up, but basically the rollout of electric vehicles. And you've got to ask who might benefit from that. So um, yeah, that's another, and, and that's the thing, like one of the problems with artisanal mining is, the lack of transparency around the world. I'll give you an example. I spoke to someone in West Africa a couple of years ago. I made contact with them. We got chatting. They were supposedly rolling out um, development aid from an EU nation. I said, why are you really there? Um, and they said they were there to, you know, initially, originally, you know, the, the, the message had been that they were there to sort of, you know, help improve the way artisanal mining was done. They said, we're really here to secure supplies for the growing electric vehicle industry in our particular country. And this is the stuff that's going on, the, the lack of transparency um, among nations. And, and when you haven't got consistency of objectives, consistency as to definitions of what success looks like, between nations, let alone within nations, let alone between companies, and let alone within companies. Because even within companies, you know, you might have the corporate CSR department, there's a corporate social responsibility that's, you know, looking to genuinely impact and achieve positive change. 
But then you'll have the legal department that's more interested in covering backside and minimising legal risk and all of that and, and reputational risk and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what Obviously, you've been travelling around the world. What are some of the bad practices that you, that you have seen that has had a big impact on artisanal mining? Um, obviously, you don't need to mention companies or jurisdictions or where. But what some of the what are some of these bad practices um, that are occurring um, that are really affecting artisanal miners? Um, there's many different ways I can answer that question. So I've just got a flying ant on the back here, which is part of living in the tropics in WA. Um, the yeah, look, many different ways I can answer that. Um, you know, cl clearly, if you're looking at artisanal mining relative to how we do things in the West, you might say there's issues around safety or environment or whatever else. Um, safety, you can probably sustain as large-scale mining, you know, definitely does things in a much safer way. Um, but what's not right for us to be doing is imparting our values onto other people and saying, you can't do that work because it's not safe. I mean, if we put the boot on the other foot and um, let's say, I came to you, I'm an artisanal miner, and I said, you can't do your podcast because we, you know, we don't like your podcast and all of that and um, we're going to shut you down. You'd be pretty annoyed. Um, environment's an interesting one. Um, I've, you know, I've had a lot of experience comparing um, environment in a large-scale context and a small-scale context or artisanal context. I've not seen, um, I don't believe, I, I, you know, the footprint of large-scale mining is way, way bigger than what it is of artisanal mining. If you looked at it on a per tonne basis, that it might change, but at the end of the day, the footprint of large-scale mining is much greater. Um, you know, one of the things that comes out of the Congo uh, that in the context of cobalt discussions are ch children working and all of that sort of stuff, but, you know, the, the West does not understand this concept of child labour and we, what we refer to as child labour in the context is so in in places like the Congo or wherever else is so far removed from reality that it's it's not funny. And and what I mean by that is, first of all, in the West we have child labour as well. We just don't call it that. You know, you have um, kids working at McDonald's. You have kids, you know, doing um, part time work after school. Um, and yeah, I, I remember when I was a kid, I was about the age of five, I was pushing a lawnmower over half an acre blocks and stuff like that. We don't call that child labour. In the third world, many children, parents tend to have large families quite often because they see the kids as a form of superannuation for when they get old. So the more kids you have, the more kids there are going to be to look after them when they get old. Um, and most of the time, in my experience, it's not child labour. It's kids basically working as part of a family unit, helping their families. Um, and I was talking to someone recently in Ghana and a, a woman called Patricia Wilkins who um, she runs a, a, an educational charity called Basics International. It's basically the, you know, the most um, effective, one of the most effective charities I've ever seen. And we talked about this. She said one of the problems is that there's no definition as to what child labour actually means. So at what age it cuts in, um, at in relation to what types of work. Because, I mean, even with a mine site, there's a million different types of work that you can do. So, um, and there's no, you know, we, we're really good in, in the developed world at the moment at picking up on buzzwords and just running with them and without actually saying what do they actually mean. And so 
I I get annoyed when I when I hear that discussion again when we're trying to impart our values onto to others. If we're going to impart our values onto others, which we're basically mandating them, then what we need to be doing is we need to be um, providing the resourcing to enable them to change, not just saying you've got to change. You're out on your own until you've affected that change, and then expect them to to fund that. So, um, uh, you know, then then you've also got um, at a different level. You know, there's there's a company at the moment that um, contacted me recently, and because I had a bit of a crack at them, um, and you've got large. You know, you've artisanal miners very often are the ones that find ore bodies. They get nothing for doing it, and you've got large companies quite often going in and doing a deal with sovereign government and the artisanals get booted out, they get nothing. Um, and then quite often they might, and, and in the case that I'm thinking of, you know, there's, there was 18 or so people killed plus others tortured. Um, and it's one of the largest large-scale mining companies in the world. So now somehow the stuff that they're selling is considered to be responsibly sourced. Um, and so these are sort of some of the, the challenges that I see around artisanal mining that are not being properly discussed or canvassed or, you know, even broadcast out in the world. And unfortunately, most people in, in the developed world have never heard of artisanal mining. And, and that's one of the things that I'm hoping to be hoping to change over the next however long. Um, and how, I suppose, how do you think we should be dealing with uh, artisanal mining globally? Um, first of all, we need to respect them. We need to give them a seat at the table. We need to listen to them. You know, one of the problems with artisanal mining at the moment is that there's 40 million of them and there's only 7 million large-scale mines around the world um, and they're heavily fragmented. So it makes it really, really easy for large players to come in and divide them and just basically get rid of them. The other, the other, the other thing that's really important is that um, a lot of the changes we're trying to impose on these miners uh, a lot of the changes we're trying to impose um, uh, create the real risk that there's going to be a, a, a really large proportion of the workforce down the track uh, disenfranchised through things like artisanal, you know, uh, artificial intelligence or um, even responsible sourcing, you know, introduction of things like blockchain and all of that. I mean, people say it's they're, they're pretty benign and harmless, but I think the way the world's going is that, um, and and the and what some seem to be saying is that. Um, things such as artificial intelligence are going to impact the third world nations negatively more so than they will in, impact, say, developed world nations. And so, what I want, what I want to see, is that um, these people, um, if we're going to take decisions that put them out of work, that we come up with mitigations that create alternative forms of employment for them and that pay equally as well. Um, what, what do you think is the driving focus of? of uh, artisanal mining is um, and I suppose why all the attention um, basically the artisanal miners are there just trying to crank out a living and make more money than they otherwise could if they were you know working in the fields and the farms um, I think again like I was saying before that a large part of the focus on artisanal mining is being dri is driven you know, fundamentally by the fact that in the developed world we're running out of um, all bodies, you know, commercial all bodies, and so the easiest place for them to go is in is into the third world. And by turning the screws on 
um, artisanal miners, it makes them harder. It makes it harder for those artisanal miners to operate. Um, and by making it harder for them to operate, it makes it easier for you know the first world nations to go in and get access to those mineral deposits. Um, and lastly, and I suppose as a, uh, as a conclusion, um, obviously a lot of people on who listen to this podcast are obviously from the mining industry. They're actually in the operations, and this could be anyone from senior level, maybe CEOs, right down to sort of graduates. Um, there's also people from um, that supply supply into the mining industry, for instance, and obviously there's investors and some other people that are interested in mining. Um, I suppose, what message would you give to them? Um, and, and I suppose, especially if you're in operations, for instance, or you're actually involved in the mine with mining companies, mining contractors, what, what kind of message would you want to give to them? Um, so it gives them something to think about moving forward around artisanal mining and maybe what they could potentially do just to improve the situation. Yeah, it's a really, it's in a way, it's a really easy answer. It's artisanal miners are people, and we live in a world of incredible division at the moment. Every day, seemingly, there's a new cause that comes up that divides people. You know, we've got a war, we've got a war going on, we've got, you know, all these causes going on, and they're all about division. So, but at the end of the day, the people that are being divided are people. And most people are fundamentally decent. They're just trying to get ahead for themselves and their, and their families. So the best, you know, if we recognise that, then that's a good start. How does that change things? If you like, if you're looking, for example, at a, um, if you're looking at a mining company that's just been issued with a mining concession or exploration concession in a third world country, and they go in, and the artist, big group of artisanals there, and like, how do we, how do we reconcile what I just said back to that? It gets really, really hard because the first world mining company has gone in, taken those concessions, think they've gone through the right process, and there's no, you know, at the end of the day, what usually happens is there's a period of coexistence. There's a bit of fascination among geos and. Um, senior people within the, th the first world mining company, but then they quickly sort of tire of each other and they get sick of each other. And then there's a, there can be, you know, dust ups and some people can get killed and then the artisanals get booted out. Um, I, I think, you know, that probably does, this is probably not directly on point in terms of what you're asking, but uh, you know, I think we also need um, greater levels of um, private sector investment into third world countries. Um, where that gets difficult, though, is that sovereign governments are not going to want to promote that, you know, promote their own firms going offshore. They want them because that impacts things like employment, whatever, in their own country. So you get to this period, this position of where you're butting your head a little bit. And um, But I think that's ultimately going to be the answer. If we want to create alternative opportunities for artisanal miners that then remove the potential, you know, conflict that can arise when first world companies come into contact with artisanals, then we really need to be opening our checkbook. And, and I don't mean checkbook in the sense of um, foreign aid. I, you know, it's a murky sector, as we all know. Uh, I mean private sector investment that um, generates employment, that um, has multipliers into associated industries and whatever else. And um, I think ultimately that's 
that's the answer to the problem. It's a, it's a, conceptually, it's an easy answer. Um, but when you drill down into the implementation, much, much more difficult. Yeah. Hugh, really appreciate your time in um, obviously sharing your journey um, and obviously giving us uh, insight and challenges that obviously artisanal mining is uh, facing. And I imagine a lot of people who are listening to this podcast um, out or maybe watching on the, the YouTube channel are probably unaware of some of the challenges that, that they are being faced, uh, the artisanal mining or in, artisanal um, industry is being faced with. And it's and like you said, they are people um, and people should treat people as as they should want to be treated themselves. Um, so it's just obviously something to something to think about. And I appreciate you uh, obviously sharing your journey. And um, obviously I can see you're passionate about about this and um, and um, obviously wish you wish you were well in your endeavors and especially the, the projects that you're working working on. If our audience has some questions, which no doubt I imagine they will have, if our audience wants to reach out to you, um, how can they go about doing that? Are you across any social media platforms? Um, also, how can people get um, access to some of your content and some of the books that you have? Yeah, Rob. I'll look. What I'll do is I'll send you across a heap of links at the you know when we get off the podcast. And um, yeah, would love you know if people sort of interested in supporting the work that I'm doing. There's there's ways you can do that. Um, I'll send those through to you, Rob. And um, but yeah, really grateful to for you. Um, taking an interest in not just my work, but you know, taking an interest in these people because, um, as you can see, I'm, I'm passionate about it. But hopefully, it's not just passion and um, you know, um, heartfelt. It's there's some actual thought behind what I'm saying, and there's some you know, a lot of years of experience. It's not just sort of shooting off at the mouth. And um, yeah, so yeah really grateful for you having me here and um happy to answer any questions that anyone might have and and um look forward to to definitely staying in contact with you yeah sure um and i'll put all those links in the uh, show notes accompanying uh, the podcast so um yeah feel free those that are listening to reach out to you um and appreciate you for listening this is an episode i think everyone who listens should be sharing um telling others in in the industry um, making them aware of this because obviously um, so, I suppose a lot of people are not necessarily directly affected or uh, directly affected, but they will be indirectly affected. Um, and it just needs to get the word out there to to everyone or as many people in the industry. So um, those that are listening, appreciate if you can share this episode uh, amongst all your friends and colleagues in the industry, um, just to make them aware of obviously this uh, situation and and this issue and um, I suppose help help prevent any um, further issues um, and maybe help some of these artisanal miners um, in the future. So um and so appreciate your time and until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining helping each other to improve the mining industry.